Nice. That's a live rendition just for you. Nice. I like that. I like yeah. that. I mean, it's wrong. Um, wrong? What are you on about? Well, it's wrong because when you when you actually listen to the recording, it's it's actually it's actually this. Hang on. Elf, I was in tune. Hang on. Hang on. It would help if he's in tune. Well, we'll cut you know, this out. Don't worry. I did that as a little uh, homage to Mez because that's the theme tune that he wrote. I thought he'd enjoy a little, you know, rendition of that. Me on the old little looper pen just whipped it off. But now he's going to point every single little flaw and insignificant detail. So go ahead, kid. It is. It is lovely to hear, but it also is this. So I'll give you that. There you go, Steve. There's no problem in that one. How are we doing then, kid? How is how's life right now during this old petrol crisis? No, I'm 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 ill, mate. (laughs) Quite frankly, Um, not COVID. Um, Let me find the the corresponding areas. Is that him? He's checked it. He's checked it twice. He is not not COVID. COVID. It's just a bit of a cold, and I'm sure you can hear it. And I apologise, I've been unorganised today, as I've already had a bit of a four by by your man. I gave him a little bit of a slap on the wrist, virtual. virtual. I enjoyed every second. <laughs> but uh, yeah, uh, a friend, he didn't borrow a microphone as such. He was going to use it at a gig that I was also at, uh, put it in his bag, and we both completely forgot about it. Uh, so apologies. This is the level of quality that I will have today, um, unless I die, because I have a cold, and I believe you do as well, don't you, Marv? Oh, man flu, yeah. I might have got it off of you, actually, because we were gigging recently, and you were yeah, like, I'm... Marv, Marv, I, I'm fine. I just have a little bit of snipples, but it'll be all right. And then we played a gig, and it was sweaty and hot, and we got told off by the venue manager. He was just an absolute warlock, and that's the word oh, I learned of like... that. I learned that word, warlock, male witch. He was hanging. He wasn't the nicest of people. And we were being really good. We were being nice to him. We were being like, okay, yeah, don't worry about it. We're not loud. We're turning down. And he's just, uh, gets on your, gets on your tabernacles. That's what it gets on. There you go. There you go. That's the point, isn't it? So, yeah, Mez is enjoying his phone. He's chilling out. Look at the pose you've got. You're just proper relaxing, chilling out. That's what yeah, you've got Yeah, I've today. got it, baby. I've got it. The thing is, it might seem rude, but I'm not being rude. I'm talking. I'm responding. There we go. <laughs> the loop yeah, of lawyer it's, it's just the way you got. The way you got to rock and roll sometimes. You know what I mean? Sometimes you have to rock and roll. I'm still trying to adjust. So it's uh, you know, uh, but you, Marv, how are you doing? You all right, kid? Yeah, I'm doing all right. You know, um, we did a Patreon video a couple of days ago, so I <clears> recapped everyone else. We have been slammed with gigging. So we would love to try and do every single week. And maybe in the future when gigs die down a little tiny bit, maybe in the next couple of months, it'd be nice to do. But we've had this one planned for a good week or so now. And we look at our schedule like, okay, we've got one day free here in this week, but 
or like this week we'll have two or three days, but then you're busy doing this. I'm busy doing this. And if we were to use that one free day, we'd have to do all the research and record it on the same day. So yep. it's very tight, but we're going to do more Patreon content. So really just become a Patreon. It's just so much cooler and better and shaving me head down like that. And it's oh, lovely. Get to get the old slap it on the back. You know? <laughs> Mez, Mez shaved his beard as well. Did a little trim. Little trim up, yeah. He's a trim man. It looks better. It feels better. It is better. One there you go. What are we doing this week then, Mez? I'll let you uh, say the old title. What are we looking at? Well, this week we are doing. I don't know if you called it this, but I'm going to call it it anyway. Call it it. There you go. Have that for free. One album wonders. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. An artist or a band has released no more than one album. Um, We discuss like original lineups and stuff like that. But I think we are just going to focus on bands and artists that have done one album. I know you're probably going to have about 200 um, honourable mentions and 8,000 pages of research and all this crud. Uh, There we go. There we go. That's a man man that needs to get a life, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, Do I need a life, though? Because I've got pages and I've got reams and i can just keep on talking yeah. forever with the strepsils in my mouth all right so he's got me who's there. the nerd who's the nerd then me yeah i'll gladly accept that um so yeah and i gave a listen to yours you gave a listen to mine um it's been interesting because my pick i listened to quite a little while ago um in terms of preparing for this yeah and um, the, the first initial listen was a while ago but um uh, you know, I re-listen, typed up some notes, got a few points to bring across, a few things I'm interested to hear your point of view on, and I can turn the lights off on my keyboard or back on. Look at that. Eh? Has that got its own dedicated light button? Yep. Ah, simple pleasures, eh? Gotta love that. Yes, we're doing people that have only had one album now. In our musical sphere and all of our peers Here. and our friends group, um, the only artist that ever comes up who only has one album is Lauren Hill. That is, if you were to yes. ask all of our friends, musician friends, who's only got one album, it would probably be Lauren Hill um, with the miseducational Lauren Hill. I'll get to that in a little bit, but I'll have a little blurb to start off with. So how can you really grasp the entire scope of an artist's intention, sound, statement, and kind of overall vibe from just one album of songs just a collection of songs you know uh can you even sustain a career from it um i mean the answer is yes but i don't know if anybody's just done the same sets of songs in the same way for the rest of their career like lauren hill well you use her as a kind of a benchmark she reimagines a lot of her songs so maybe even from a couple of years of each kind of tour or each kind of performance, the songs might radically change a lot, um, but they still kind of have their essence there and to varying degrees of a success. You can make the argument that one hit wonder artists, whether one song or one popular album have managed to do this with varying degrees of success. So those two things are quite linked, you know, like a band that have only known for like you, not the killers is a bad example, but like if they were only known for Mr. Brightside, which was still in the charts now, they could still ride that success up until now. You could argue that their later output, 
you know, they're in the kind of back nine of their career. So they're just chilling and maybe you only go to see the killers for Mr. Brightside, you know? Um, and if I had a look, uh, if the general audience, audience of people only know you for that one song album, then does any song or album before or after that point really even exist? Does that make sense to you, Mez? Uh, it does exist, but I know exactly what you were saying. If you were to do, <laughs> if you were to do three albums of material, but on your fourth album you had one breakthrough hit, and then you suddenly seen overnight all of these new hordes of fans. They only liked that one album because of the massive hit single, and it may be a sprinkle of other songs, but they paid no attention to those first three albums and then you made say two or three more after that and even then it was kind of like i just want you to play this one song play iron maiden with the lights off that's the song you've the big smash it song you got yeah but that's the classic isn't it i mean obviously uh obviously bands are gonna have songs that are very popular and they're gonna have albums that no one cares about it's just the way it goes i guarantee you i'd say Oh, no, that's an unfair number. I'd say maybe 40% of the people who go to see Journey are probably only there for Don't Stop Believing. Um, and that is why bands put their biggest songs at the end, because otherwise it'd be like, turn up, da 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 Yeah, hear that go out. Uh, which kind of, thinking on that subject, I don't really think that would be a thing, because... I like Journey. I mean, I've never been to see them. I've never really looked this up, but I imagine they're not cheap to see live. Um, no, I wouldn't think so. so. Why would you pay all that money to see one song? But then some people are crazy. Who knows? Exactly. Um, exactly. But yeah, I mean, I kind of get it. Um, yeah, I know what you said. But, but then, just... again, narrow that down to one album then. If you've only got one album that has a smash hit on it and nothing else... Let's say it's 12 albums long. So your your gigs are going to have 12 songs. You're going to put the most famous one at the end. Yeah. And I mean, there's there is no there is no before album, there is no after album. It's just that. Mm-hmm. I, I even that's then kind of a scary concept. And you'd think as an artist, wouldn't you want to produce more music just for your self-satisfaction and then you know you're going to have fans that will just listen to anything you put out regardless so it kind of makes you think like why do people stop at one album you know what there is legalities to it where people have their like names and rights uh signed over so they like uh a ban from releasing any tunes but yeah i mean uh, there's a number of could be a number of reasons as to why you know exactly um, so yeah, Lauren, Lauren Hill. Lauren Hill is the is the classic example. The miseducation Lauren Hill in in nineteen ninety eight, um, huge critical and commercial success, garnering achievements by a female solo artists that have only recently been surpassed, and some that still hold today. Um, she really hit it out of the gate with her soul album, and she was twenty three when it came out, which blew my mind even further. Insane, yeah. Um, now I went to go see her live. It was a big bunch of us. Um, it's pretty much the band minus you, wasn't it? Yeah, because it wasn't fifty p. I didn't want to come. Is <laughs> uh, it Birmingham NEC? We drove all the way there, and we parked at the wrong place. And we had lovely meal. We had like Pizza Express or something. Finished up like right. Let's walk over, and it was like, oh, this is the wrong place. I had to run over the bridge, run over these things, get there. It's all fine. Um, I can't remember the opener band, but Corey Henry was there. And then yeah. um, 
Lauren Hill was the headliner. Now, we were a bit disappointed. We we're disappointed with Lauren Hill. Yeah. Corey Henry smashed it. He did a really good rendition of Staying Alive by the Bee Gees. Like the organ playing was fantastic. Synth playing was fantastic. His singing was on point. Just really good energy. The guitar player was kind of like you and the fact that you could tell he had a metal shred background and it would like poke out every now and then, but he would always keep it under wraps. It was like, I don't know. Like he was a stick of dynamite with a really, really long fuse. And yeah. You just see that like he'd have little sparks of like. Little yeah. Um, and then, yeah, Laura Hill came out. It was all hype. But yeah, I don't know what it was. It was just, she kept having problems with the sound. So she kept looking to a, a monitor and you'd be like, up, up, up like that. And then, you know, would sing some lines and then stop and would go off stage and come back on. And a lot of the backing singers were doing a lot of the, the main vocals. And I don't know. It just seemed a bit disjointed. Like it was almost like a makeup show and just kind of like, I'm going to get through this. You just went for the same songs. Um, I really wanted to hear her do her mashup of, because Drake sampled her in a song, Nice For What. So I really wanted to hear that because apparently she had done that at concert, but she didn't. Um, yeah, it was just I don't know. It was just a bit underwhelming. We were kind of all on the way back and we got lost trying to find the car park because they, they close everything around there. So it was like you had a massive long walk. Um, and a couple of uh, people were with really drunk. So it was like trying to herd sheep with them. Finally got back. But yeah, we just a bit like, I don't, I wouldn't want to go see her again based off of that. But Corey Henry found the new fan in Corey Henry. So mm. that's all I got to say. Well, he is great. He is great. And he lets me almost. Yeah. Really, really good. Um, yeah. I don't want to keep going on slagging off Lauren Hill because I do have a lot of respect for her and it was just based off that one kind of time. But again, I digged a little deeper and she has released a lot of other songs, solo songs. If you look into her career very sporadically um, and she was meant to be recording an album, I think like 2014, maybe, but it just never came out. So who knows, you know, and I mean, now the Fugees are uh, doing reunion shows as well. Obviously she's, she was in the Fugees if, if no one is aware of that very huge uh influential band and i mean you, you could you could argue that you have an album of material for her before her solo album but if you're being really really strict she's got miseducation she's got a live unplugged album which had a lot of new songs um but that deserves its own episode because that's very divisive very very divisive i don't know if you've ever heard that mess it's, no, it's, it's her with an acoustic guitar um and it's a lot of like rough. Uh, I think she's got like laryngitis or something. She's like she's got a really bad throat, but she's um, it's all these like raw songs that she's not really like figured out the structures for or got the chords really solid, and they all just sound the same. Yeah. It's a very disjointed listen, I must say. No, I'll have to give that a shame. I can't say I've uh, I've ever delved into that. I have to do a little Patreon uh, watch along or something. Hmm. Never know. Indubitably. Indubitably. So yes, we're going to go with my pick today because you always go first, and that's not true. I always, I, I always give you the option. To go I first. don't think you realise half the time when you take off. We'll have to tally that up then. You're like a little concord. You are. I just keep run going. away. Go run on away. then. You run tell away. you tell us your pick for the one album wonder that you're doing today. <laughs> so. I did. I did the Shags 
it was quite funny because I'm I'm a Bristol lad. I call everyone Shag. You're a Shag. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that a Bristolian term? Uh, I thought it was Welsh, but it turns out it is Bristolian. Fair enough. Fair enough. So I did the Shags philosophy of the world. Now I do believe we briefly mentioned the Shags on here before. Yes. Um, I believe a friend of ours, Sophie, told you to go and listen to it. Um, and it's it's very interesting, very very interesting. So, excuse me. It was released on July the fifteenth in nineteen sixty nine. Now there were like four genres that came across when I was looking at this: garage rock, pop rock, outsider music, nice, and avant garde. It's half an hour long. Doesn't impose upon anything, but as always, I'll give you a bit of info. I'll give you what I think, and we'll go from there. So, love to wear it. The Shags, that is S H A G G S, comprised of sisters Helen, Betty, and Dorothy, or Dot Wiggin. So they they were from the U.S. They were American, which you can hear if you listen to it. They were managed by their father, Austin. And they were sometimes accompanied by another sister known as Rachel. Now, I'm not 100% sure if she's on this album, is, is our Rachel. Oh, she is. I'm telling a lie. But we'll get to that. So, they performed almost exclusively in their town hall at their home of Fremont in New Hampshire and at a local nursing home beginning in 68 and ended in 73. <laughs> so you've listened to it, Marv. You've listened to or some of it or all of it or whatever. I listened to, I listened to all of it. Now, we always present without judgment. We always take our time. We always talk about a few facts. So most people in their hometown of Fremont disregarded their sound but their father was convinced that they would be stars. And in 1969, he used most of his savings to record this album. Now, it, it's incredible that he just did that. Uh, he just went, okay, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do that. Because, you know, listening to it, it, it it's very, uh, to put it politely, it's rough around the edges. Uh, there's a lot of unconventional things in there, but it's very, very interesting as well. So yeah, Austin, their father, he drove the girls down to a studio in Massachusetts, determined to get them on tape while they were still hot. Um, the connotations of that, I am hoping he means while they're still hot in the music industry. Of course. Um, <clears throat> he struck a deal with Third World Recordings. They recorded their debut album in one day, recording a dozen tunes written by Sister Dot. And on the first original pressing, 900 of the original 1,000 copies of the album vanished out of the warehouse. And shortly thereafter, the record company's producer slash president also disappeared and the label folded. Wow. So you've just recorded your first album. You've got a thousand first pressings ready to go. 900, 900 of them disappear. 
and so does your label president and your producer just gone surely you must be thinking at that point like is it us that seems really strange that it's us that's kind of made made that happen yes um but despite that setback a lot of music collectors got hold of those remaining copies word of mouth started and those who liked it giving it almost universal praise but with many others complaining of the sloppy almost nonsensical way the arrangements were made as well as the singing now I don't like to describe it like that. I, I think that's unfair, yeah. uh, given the age of the girls and the lack of musical experience they had. <clears throat> um, but yeah, I mean, some people say it was done intentionally, that their father pushed them to do that. A rumour that persisted for many years, that even though he denied it, um, and the notion would further be disputed when the tracks when the tracks from the band's 1975 recording session showed much more polished and professional sounding musicianship. Now, I haven't listened to that because I got all my notes there and went, I'll listen to that and didn't listen to it. So, um, But that apparently resurfaced in 1982. There's a lot of mystery surrounding this band. Yeah. Why they're called the Shags, I cannot tell you. I think they bumped into your dad. And he went, right, shag, right, shag, right, shag. And they all thought, we must, we must be the shags. There you go. Uh, so, yeah, the sisters have actually said before in the past that they don't like the album. They don't like it. But that's classic, isn't it? Um, they note about the several quirks in the musicianship, <laughs> um, the rhythm mistakes that were left in, and this was actually a factor in the band's breakup. And they don't want to reunite because of this. Um, but, you know, you know, it's, it's kind of interesting how it goes, how it goes forward. But by the mid 70s, a local station in Boston began playing a few cuts from the record. And they brought, they brought the group and the record fame. Uh, in fact, I think the, uh, the station is the reason why we're talking about this now. Um, interesting thing. So, <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> we'll just get this up in a minute. So, I was uh, listening to the album on Spotify, might I add, and I, I was having a look through, and I couldn't help but notice that it said release date 2016. Yeah. Now, that's not correct. It was released in 1969. I know that for a fact, because I was there. Um, and so were you. You were, what, 58? 58, yeah. yeah 58 yeah. years old. A couple of days from my birthday, really. So yeah, that's... Getting that's ready. Was was getting ready to put on my birthday blowing in dentures. Exactly, yeah. So, um, but yeah, and I thought, how can... How can that be the case? And I learned something. Bloody hell, go on. I know, it's, this is going mental. So, on their Wikipedia page, Wikipedia page for philosophy of the world, we've got label, Third World, 1969, Red Rooster, 1980 to 1988, RCA Victor, 1999, Light in the Attic, 2016. 
So my theory is this. Whenever something gets bought, like the rights get bought, or it gets re-released or something, that's when Spotify counts it as the album's been released. <laughs> that's what I think. Either that or it's the year of added, but that can't be true because there's multiple albums on there that were released pre-Spotify's existence and they still list it as that year. Who knows, mate? I think it's to do with rights, but, but yeah, so... <coughs> Excuse me. Yeah. I think that record label is the reason we're listening to it and the reason why we can listen to it. Obviously, it's the reason, but it became further known in 78 when independent music band NRBQ listened in, sought out a copy, then had it re-released in 1980 on the Red Rooster Records. So, later, Dr. Demento, great name. That was a great name. An American radio broadcaster and record collector specializing in novelty songs, comedy, and stranger, unusual recordings, began to play the album almost exclusively on his radio show nationwide, especially around the holiday Halloween, when he would play the album track, It's Halloween. <clears throat> which I'm sure you've heard, Mark. And for many years since, it became part of his top funny five recordings of the week. <laughs> the Wiggins sisters, obviously the Shags, expressed consistently confusion and surprise in regard to why their music had become so popular, noting that the work was largely an accident. So, there's a lot of information there. There's a lot of... Mez has just gone. I've got some questions for you, Mark. Some Ooh. questions. Go on, boy. Give me some of them. So, number one, what did you think of it? What did I think of Philosophy of the World? Now, I remember listening to it years ago and being like, "Is this a joke? Is are we? Are we? Yeah. Oh, it's a joke. Yeah, this is this is this is rubbish, and this is crap. This is just." don't know what's going on here who's giving babies all these instruments um but then again my scope of listening to quote-unquote bad albums intensified and the last two times i listened to it which was the last was, was today and about three four days ago um yeah i don't know it's it's really intriguing i think it has its own unique sound yes like like i played to you before we started recording I just went, hey, look, this is every Shag song and just kind of played some notes, yep. played about three chords. Yeah. And to me, it's like, well, that's that's hard enough in itself to get a unique sound to be, yeah. to be identifiable to anybody. They've already had that out of the gate. Like we said, like you were doing the mimicking the drum uh, roles that always keep happening. Yeah. yeah. Um, the vocals following the guitar notes, like it's just very charming and it's very cool to see people that have say a very very basic understanding of how music works yes. like viewing and viewing is the lens of just this album like you said if they've got more polished recordings um it's a different kind of thing but like reviewing it as like this is their technical ability that they can this is the best they can play versus yeah. somebody who is like like a jacob collier person who's just like knows every single note microtonal note can play every single rhythm like 
a very, very highly regarded musician who's very technically gifted. But, you know, I'd maybe recognize the shags more. They're more identifiable, more unique, maybe, than someone who knows everything. So I can't call it a bad album in that regard, but I definitely think it's one of those where if you drop someone into that album, they're going to be like, this is crap. This is rubbish. And even I think when you start to, if you sit down and maybe hear the story behind it, I think it gives you a little context, but I still think it's jarring. And it's still like, well, it doesn't matter that, it doesn't matter that they, you know, their their dad took them out of school and just like go play instruments and have no, no, you know, don't listen to any music and just go figure out on your own. It yeah. still then lends the result of like, yeah, well, it's going to be rubbish. I think it's more the fact that like, this is an album you got to ease yourself into, yes. get a couple of bad ones under your belt, go to this. And then I think then you go, yeah, it's not the worst thing I've ever heard in my life. You know, you agree with that? I, I do agree with that. And groovy, baby. <laughs> the, the whole album does have a sound. Um, it's a very... I don't know. I'd, I'd say there's psychedelic elements to it. Um, I'd say there's a lot of experimental things going on, but I wouldn't say we could call it experimental because these are kids, and these kids um, is, uh, they, they don't necessarily understand music in the same way you or I do. Um, how, uh, old were, how old were they when they did this? How old were they? Well, they were in their teens. Okay. Um, I want to say they were around the 13, 14 mark. Interesting. So like young teens. Um, yeah. and, it, and it is very much like, it's. I'm trying to explain it. So you obviously hear kids singing all the time. Kids just sing. Uh, that's one of, the, one of the earliest things we learn how to do as human beings. And uh, apart from obviously communicate and things like that. Um, I, I, I remember from a very early age. I mean, we I I went to primary school. When did I go to primary school? I want to say I want to say the late nineties to about two thousand and five, and um, we used to sing Christian hymns in assembly. Not that I wanted to, I wasn't interested, but we used to do it. So from a very young age, I was used to singing already. You know. And uh, music existed, but I mean, I'm assuming in 1969 and the early 60s and the mid 60s, it would have been quite similar, but a lot stricter. So obviously music would, would have been a big part of growing up and especially like things like the Beatles and Elvis 10 years previously, rock and roll becoming a big thing, the Rolling Stones. <clears throat> it's, it's going to feature a big part of your life unless you live under a stone on the other side of Mars. So this is kind of the point, isn't it? So it's not that they're mimicking anything in particular. I think they're just mimicking um, like their experience of music, if you like. They've they've gone, this is what music sounds like to me. Um rather than using particular recording or music playing techniques. Because yeah. um, they're kids, you know, they're, they're legally, they are still children. Um, which is kind of weird to think about when you listen to the recordings. And this is actually something I wanted to go on to. 
Did you look at any of the lyrics or could you make out many of the lyrics? I made out most of the lyrics and I liked I liked the simple rhyme schemes. I think that's yes. the most digestible part of it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Every single line somehow rhymes with the one before and after it. Yeah. Um, as you say, it's very simple, but it's got to be. They're kids. Yeah. And yeah, and I mean, the same with the vocals. Uh, the scales they're using, it's major, isn't it? The whole way through. Pretty much. Um, it's all its all the same. Like, it feels like <laughs> it's played in the key of G, all of them. Yes. It but, is like, yes. very out of tune. Yeah. Yeah. There, there is a lot going on there that is, um, as we say, not traditional in terms of recording or writing. But surely when things are traditional, that's when it gets boring. That's when people like you and me go, I've heard that. Give me something different. So it's it, it's kind of strange to try and judge, isn't it? But I'm going to give you some lyrics, Marv. Go on, boy. Because I know you'll enjoy this. I do. I will have more things to ask you as we go on, but I'm going to give you some lyrics. <laughs> so I had a look at Who Are Parents? Because I thought this song actually showed a bit of... Um, is honest. That's something I noticed in the, a lot of the lyrics. If they're talking about something in particular, like this subject, yeah, there's honesty, and they're actually quite wholesome about it as well. I like it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, who are parents? These are the lyrics. I won't read them all out because a lot of it. Oh, that's fine. Okay, here we go. Some kids do as they please. They don't know what life really means. They don't listen to what the ones who care really have to say. That's something else. You get sentences that sort of stumble upon each other. But they're kids, you know, it's kind of interesting. They just go and do things their own way. Who are parents? Parents are the ones who always care. I think the line is, it's wrong here. I really should have. Ah, that's fine. They won't won't remember. Um. Who are parents? Parents are the ones who are always there. Now, something else in their songs, their structures and their arrangements, it's all over the place. It's everywhere. Yeah. Which is really cool. I really like that because it's just like, um, who are parents? Parents are the ones who always care. Who are parents? Parents are the ones who are always there. The instrumental section for an anonymous amount of time. Yeah. Some kids think that their parents are, and you know what I mean? That's that's really cool to me because it's not just, we're so used to intro, verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, verse, double chorus, end. Yeah. And I think this is something else that people find jarring about this album because it kind of messes with you a little bit. It's, it, it's I wouldn't call it directionless, but it's certainly a case of um, throw the sat-nav out the backseat. We're going on a mystery tour type yeah. deal, do you know what I mean? Um, <laughs> some kids think their parents are cruel just because they want them to obey certain rules. <laughs> then they start turning from the ones who really care. Turning, turning for the ones who will always be there. Then we have who are parents again. <laughs> Parents do understand. Parents do care. We must remember. Parents are the ones who will always understand. Parents are the ones who really care. 
And then we have three, we'll call it choruses, is three rounds of who are parents. So structurally in the lyrics, we have verse, chorus, verse, chorus, verse, verse, chorus, chorus, chorus. End of song. Killing it. It's 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 interesting, you know. They're obviously they're writing about what they know, or Dot is. Dot wrote all of these songs. Yeah. Dorothy Wiggin, if you will. Um, she wrote all of these songs. Um, they're about a, a, a wide array of subjects, um, which I, I I really like. I really like the uh the differences between them, and some of them. They're not dark as such, but they're, um, how do I describe it? They're just a bit, I don't know, Marv, I, I hate doing this because every single time we have an album similar to this, I always seem to be able to find a way of linking it back to, oh, this has quite a dark quality to it. And uh, that's, <laughs> it's not what I'm trying to get at. What I'm trying to get at is, um, he's coughing. What I'm he's trying coughing to get at, and he's sniffing. I am sniffing like a bad I'm sorry, folks. We love it. We love it. If they hey, uh, if they can't take us at our worst, then well, we're, we haven't got a best, have we, really? There you go, kid. We do the bare minimum, so. But um so, yeah. I'll give you I'll give you another load of lyrics from a completely different I say completely different, it's on the same album. <laughs> Written by the same person, performed by the same band. There you go. So um how crazy is that? Oh, mental, mate. Uh, so that little sports car, we've already briefly spoken about this because yeah. you said about the intro, was it? The, the way I love the intro. Car. It's great, isn't it? It was so cool. It's great. I'm really into it. It's absolutely brilliant. So this is a bit more of a metaphorical one, I think. If we take the last one, who our parents is literal, I would take this as a bit more metaphorical. But then, Dorothy, she's a child, so maybe she is a bit literal. Who knows? There was a sports car on the road. On the road. It's called and response in this one, vocals. I thought I knew the fellow that drove. That little sports car was slippery as an oyster. Are oysters slippery, Marv? I mean, I think they are, because you open them up and then you kind of do that, don't you? Oh, oh the inside. I thought she just meant the... The shell, no? See, she's you getting you thinking. Just getting you getting the old gears ticking. <laughs> Following it was like riding on a roller coaster. Roller coaster. <laughs> Around the corners and over the bumps, every minute, faster and faster, my heart thumped. I really like that line. I really like that line. Around the corners and over the bumps, every minute, faster and faster, my heart thumped. I lo- I, I'm really into that. I think that's great. And then we repeat my heart thumps. There's a uh, a running theme in this song, which tells me they understand patterns within music as well. Because at the end of every verse, if you want, the last word or words are repeated. Well, finally, he stopped to get some gas. If I was to catch up, I had to move fast to move fast. I stepped on the gas and just made the corner. Wow, I was almost a goner. Goner. When I got there, he was gone. I don't know where I went wrong. I went wrong. The time went fast. It was late. I knew we had no time to waste. Time to waste. I turned around and headed for home. 
I learned my lesson never to roam. I learned my lesson never to roam. Never to roam times four. I actually think that's quite arty, mate, to be honest with you. It's got a really good imagery to it. You can yeah. read that. And I think the a really good connection for me is like they read almost like nursery rhymes. If you yes. had a book of nursery rhymes with these, they they just have such good imagery in it, especially yes. coming from like early teenagers. Absolutely. So that was actually where I was moving towards. So I'm glad you said that. We got connected. So they, there you go, so they they really do read and feel like nursery rhymes. So yeah. as much as I said they're not necessarily mimicking anything in particular, they are mimicking nursery rhymes. Um. I mean, we've all said before a million times that if you strip a song back enough, whatever the genre, whatever the artist, it's just chords and words. It's all it is. Yep. And when you strip it back that far, there is a real arty quality to it. There's a real poetic nursery rhyming quality to it. Um, I think it hits on a deeper surface than people realise. Either that or I'm just talking crap. <laughs> Uh, I've had a lot of lemon sip today, so maybe that's the reason why. But you check, the side, think... you check the side effects on the lemon sip label. Yeah, will make um, you will make you uh, will make you ponder yeah. shite on a podcast. I mean, I believe it. I think this album is interesting and thought provoking. For sure, for sure, genuinely do. And I also think it could be seen as more of an experiment. Um. Because obviously, you know, if, if me and you went to a studio, which we have done multiple times, and it was like, all right, lads, right, 12 songs, first 12, we'll record with a band, we'll release, see what it does. Me and you would record a drastically different album. I mean, obviously, number one, we're fully grown men from the UK, as opposed to young teenage girls in the, in America. But number, number two... Uh, we, we both have musical experience and know what we like the sound of, know how we like to write, know what our process is. Yeah. And we have a wide understanding, a much wider understanding of chords and music theory as opposed to these girls may or may not have had. So that's why it makes me think of a bit of an experiment because it's almost like um, their dad, instead of really, really believing in them, which we know he did, yeah, but instead of that, he had literally just gone, ah, sod it. Here's my life savings. Go to a studio, see what happens. Um, because, and I think that's the impression people get because of obviously the, I don't want to say the different level of quality as such, but the different, uh, the real different vibe it has. We'll go with that because it's got such a a, a, a nonsensical nursery rhyme poetic childish quality to it I, I i think that's what it puts people off um yeah there's a lot there which you could be like that's out of time oh that's this that's that i mean everything queen has ever recorded was never done to a click so does that mean that's out of time what about led zeppelin yep what about van halen um Never really put putting their guitar strictly in A440 Hertz, you know. No, yeah, you, you make a really good point. It's like, um, how far do you put your barometer of like this has to be correct to these yeah. sets of things? Okay, well, if you were to do that, then 95% of a lot of music is going to be wrong and therefore bad. You're going to view that as yeah. bad. 
So just because this one's at the extreme of it's very much out of tune, it's very much out of time. Like there's a song near the end where the drums are trying to, the drums are playing and the vocals and the guitars are the, are the things that really keep the time because the, yes. the guitar and the vocal do this exactly the same melody at the same time. And the yes. drums are just playing a groove and it's almost like they're being lapped over. Yeah. Like they miss yeah, a yeah. whole, they go like a whole bar back. It's really yeah. weird, but then they'll stop and then they'll kind of sync up again and then yeah. play. But yeah, very extreme way of doing it. But yeah, well, where, is, where really yeah. do you put the line then? Do you put it before, you know, 1998 when auto-tune was kind of around and you had Share Believer? It's like, right, okay, vocals are definitely in tune. Do you do it before Pro Tools and everything was on computers where you could grid stuff? Um, yeah. And even then, like that music really that really shiny pop music and even shiny pop rock or rock music now to me has no quality or substance to it or thought. Whereas the shags does like it has a story and you can actually, it's almost like if you to tell someone that story and not have the album as the kind of evidence, people be like, are you sure that's real? That doesn't sound right. Yeah. That sounds a bit yeah, weird. Yeah, yeah. You had this album. It's like, yeah, a really good companion piece. And it, it really, you can hear that story through the album. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah, that, that is the point, isn't it? <coughs> I was having a conversation with a friend of my of my girlfriend's the other the other week, actually. Um, I was saying to her about I can't remember how we got on the subject. Um, that's right, we we passed somewhere where there was um karaoke going on. Uh, and not good karaoke for that matter. Um, and I remember her saying to me, like, does that drive you insane? So obviously all you do is music. And I was like, uh, not not so much, because uh if someone's extremely out of tune, my brain can deal with it a lot better than if someone's nearly in tune, they're just they're just off, do you know what I mean? My my brain can't deal with that. It, uh it doesn't like it. And people think I'm lying. People think I'm making it up. I, I genuinely struggle with that. Um, it's the same as an out-of-tune guitar. I, I can't deal with it. You could have finished the tune. Do the guitar again. It's out-of-tune. Sort it out. Strangely enough, nothing on this album messed with me in that way. But anyway, um, we were talking about it, and I got on to the dangerous subject about how all guitars and in fact all wooden instruments in the west are never ever in tune yeah that weird sciencey thing that makes it so that they're not they're never in tune they're never in tune um and she laughed and went oh my my cheap electric keyboard is probably more in tune than haha like a joke and i was like no it will be yeah. She was like, what do you mean? I said, that is mimicking an actual note. Whereas my guitar is doing its own thing. It's like uh if we if we put it put it to you, um that keyboard, and it'd be the same with your keyboards, your keyboard will always be in tune. My guitars will not. Yeah. Um it's like you've taken the stabilizers off the keyboard. And they they've no longer got that guide to tell you what note it is. Um, here he goes. Here he goes. Well, I was going to do a little experiment because you just popped into my head. So, come on. There we go. Can you hear that? I can hear that. Turn me sound a little bit. 
So what Merit's talking about, what we can kind of say is this. So I can play the note A here, right, on the low E string. But for people who don't play guitar, okay, you might think that every time I play that, that's going to give that note exactly to that measurement. You know, I've tuned my guitar up. That's perfect. But even something as simple as, I mean, that I'm putting light pressure on there. So even if I was to push a little bit harder, let's listen to this. That's me pushing down very, very hard. I'm in the same area of the fretboard. That's technically the same note. That's almost up a, like a half step in notes. So if you're playing live uh, or even playing in the studio and getting a bit kind of uh, ready to go, you know, kind of... Might push too hard on the fretboard without knowing it. So, technically, again, back to this this conversation of well, okay, that's technically out of tune. So that means that goes into the bad category of music. So you'd have to sit down and then play that and make sure again that even when you hit the string, it might waver a little bit in and out of tune. So then, how do you get around that? Is that even a bad thing? Is it even a terrible thing? Um, how nitpicky do you go? Because also just like leave it alone. And then another thing I was thinking as well is that imagine trying to cover this album. I feel like it would be very, very impossible. Whereas oh. technically demanding music, like a lot of guitar, you know, shredder guitar instrumental music, um, you know, Paul Gilbert, Steve Vile, that stuff, you could sit down and imitate that and get it right, get tones and all that stuff. But to yeah. really try and get every nuance of the shags and play along to at least one song, you'd, you'd be out of time. So you'd be out of time to them. So therefore you would be bad. Yeah. You know, that's what's fascinating. Exactly. exactly. This is, this is exactly the point. Um, and you, you exactly got the point I meant with the whole, nothing's fully in tune. Um, yeah. But what do you call bad? What about scar tissue? Yep. How that B string is tuned up because um, of the way that it, it's something to do with the way the guitar is laid out, isn't it? With intonations and things. Um, it's very weird to think about. It's very strange when you, I don't know, you listen to something like you, you can be as, 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 as current or as old as you want and nothing's in tune. But because our ears aren't that sensitive to that, the um, I don't know, it just it just works, doesn't it? I, I remember a while ago reading about um, people who have the most perfect pitch in the world, yeah, and one of them directs an orchestra, I think, in America, and it drives him insane because he can hear all the like indiscrepancies in all of the musical instruments, and it drives him insane because he's got. He's got a naturally perfect pitch. So he can hear every time there's the slightest change in anything, in anything. And imagine a whole orchestra. Imagine how many changes there's going to be between, between an oboe and a clarinet or between a, a viola or a violin or a cello. And you, you know what I'm getting at? It's... Uh, <coughs> it's quite crazy to think about 
but that's what that man deals with on a daily basis. He, he, yeah. he has to listen to that. And I imagine it drives him physically insane. <laughs> I imagine it does. It just uh, blows my mind. But anyway, anyway, back to the shags. Back to the shags. Back to the shags, shag. Back to the shags. So, yeah, what do we define as a mistake? Given, given everything we've just discussed... And like every, uh, considering every album me and you have listened to, um, what do we define as a mistake? Well, the, the easiest thing. Do we call thing, anything on this album a mistake? I'd say no. I'd say, I would say no. Yeah. I think, I think a mistake is something that you intend not to do. Yeah. But then I guess if you were to look at, you know, if they said that, they weren't happy with that album because that wasn't the recordings they wanted to put out. And there was a, they're, they're admitting there was mistakes there. You could argue that point and go, we're listening to mistakes. But then again, that's the only reference material we've got for that album. Yeah. And you're ingesting that, not knowing the songs as well. You, you haven't heard the songs before, what no. they're meant to sound like or anything like that. So it's, and again, it's, it's just so hard to define what an actual mistake is. You know, you could look at the Nick yep. Jonas video of him playing guitar where he goes out to do the solo and bless him, he hits the wrong fret and it's like, oh, we've all been there. Um, handles it like a pro, but it's like, okay, that typically is a mistake. He didn't want to do that. But yeah. in the Shag's opinion where it's like, okay, I just really don't think it is because... Also, when I'm listening to it, I'm not feeling like I'm not hearing little bits of notes from like that's wrong, that's wrong, or that's making me feel horrible. I'm taking it all in as an experience. So that'd yeah. be my definition. Mez, what how are you gonna say this? I mean um, uh, a mistake is a debate, in my opinion. Um sometimes things happen by mistake and we call them happy accidents. It's um, it's like anything you can you can turn anything around. Um, I do. I, it's hard to explain. I know a lot. Of, I I know of and I know personally. Well, me personally, yeah. I know a lot. Of, yeah, I know a lot of people who sort of have the live playing versus studio playing attitude and. I kind of like both because there's opportunities for both and there are different techniques in both as well. I remember the first time I recorded professionally when uh, I can't, can't even remember where it was now, but the amount of times option to do what we call a drop in rather than just hit and record and playing everything through. You play everything through a couple of times, so the engineer producer has some good bits, and then you do what's called drop-ins, where there'll be like four bars of music, and he'll be like, you ready? Yep, do that. Okay, and you play it in, and he goes, yeah, or he goes, no, nope, do it again. Um, then you just move on like that. You do, you do bits as and when. And I remember that shocking me to the very core. Um, because I, I was just like not expecting it. It's very much leave your ego at the door kind of deal. Yeah. Uh, save your ego for when you're playing live and you're pulling all this stuff off without a hitch. And um, 
the Shags wouldn't have done that. There would have been no drop-ins. It would have literally just been a case of guitar, is it? Yeah, they might not even the multi-tracks. They might have literally been a case of microphone, microphone, microphone. Yeah, click record. When you're ready, girls, crack on. Literally, do your 12 songs. There you go. So it's uh, that's another factor to consider alongside the fact that they may or may not have had a wide understanding of music. I mean, it's... It's certainly difficult what, how to judge a mistake when, in a lot of ways, you could view that mistake as the sound of the album. You know, with the, the guitar's got a very similar um, sort of flanger, phasey, chorusy sound throughout. It doesn't get boring to me, in actual fact. There's a lot of simple chords. In fact, I say a lot, there's simple chords. Uh, as you say, there's like a guitar line, the vocal following it, or vice versa. But it's unique. It sounds different. It sounds like unlike anything I've ever heard before. I was going to try and compare it to... Um, oh, I can't think of his name now. We discussed it with our good friend, Dasheen. Go on. Probably Captain Beefheart. Captain Beefheart. So there was going to be a level of my part in this podcast where I was going to say... How is it like Captain Beefheart, Marv? And we would draw conclusions from that. But to my mind, Captain Beefheart, they already all had a big understanding of music and knew exactly what they wanted to do with it. Whereas the Shags didn't. But when you really think about it, when you listen to Beefheart, you listen to the Shags, there's, they've both got an element of there are things in here that traditionally wouldn't happen in music and there are things in here that traditionally wouldn't happen in music. Yeah. This sounds random and like they've just thrown it together. This sounds random and like they've just thrown it together. Do you know what I mean? So I would, I, I would be tempted to draw that comparison, but also they're both extremely different pieces of art. So, I mean, well, you, you, could, you could also make the point that I think to like, let's say to first time listeners of both those albums that you've got, like we we're saying with the Jacob Colley thing and the Shags, it's like, okay, Captain Beefheart, who is a musician and all those other people who had musicians know what they're doing. Shags are still learning. You can call them musicians but you know, a very basic level. Yeah. If you listen to them both side by side, they got very striking similarities where things are out of time, out of tune, very crazy sounding, very um, sporadic. Yeah. So they both live in the same kind of, um, I was going to say atmosphere, but they both live in the same kind of world. If I was to play both of them to someone, they they could relate both of them. Be like, yeah, they both sound out of tune and rubbish and weird and all these things. But then you. And they both have pretty mad stories behind them. So I think yeah. that's a fair enough comparison to put that. Frank Zappa, um, you know, quoted as saying that the Shags uh, Revolution of the World is like one of his favorite albums. Kurt Cobain put it in like one of his favorite albums. So yep. like it's, it, it's very influential. And you look at the people who loved it. Yeah. So that that's all that people want from their art, you know, or that's a, that's a piece that you'd want to be influential to people to go like, I really like this. I respect this. And you want to go, yeah, that's great. I love to hear that someone else likes my work. So of course, 
even if the shags didn't like it. And like you said, it came out and it was suddenly then starting getting praised when it was getting played on radios and things. Yeah. So again, all because it's got quote unquote mistakes in it, you know, but people chase years trying to get everything perfect and it comes out and it's like, ready, you're ready. And everyone's like, oh, I don't care. So that's all right. Isn't it? all yeah. Right. Yeah. This is, this is exactly the point, isn't it? But yeah. So, so personnel on this album, we have Dorothy Wigan, AKA dot on lead guitar and vocals. We have Betty Wigan Porter on rhythm guitar and vocals. We've got Helen Wiggin on drums. And I like this. This is like a little feature, but she is technically part of the Shags. Rachel Wiggin, bass guitar on that little sports car. Nice. Um, so, yeah. So, got a bit for you here, mate. Bit of a quote. Go a bit on. more info. Philosophy of the world is the sickest, most stunningly awful, wonderful record I've heard in ages, the perfect mental purgative for doldrums of any kind. And that was written by Deborah Ray Cohen for Rolling Stone in a review of the 1980 reissue. So this album's been reissued quite a few times. Nice. Like a lobotomized trap family singers, the Shags warble earnest greeting card lyrics. Now, I really do agree with that. Greeting yeah. card lyrics. Yeah. What a fantastic description. In a happy, hapless, quasi-unison along ostensible lines of melody, while strumming their tinny guitars like someone ha- someone worrying a zipper. Fantastic. The drummer pounds gamely to the call of a different muse, as if she had to guess which song they were playing, and missed every time. Without exaggeration, Chris Connolly wrote in a later Rolling Stone article, it may stand as the worst album ever recorded. In an article for The New Yorker, the album was described as hauntingly bad. So, as you've already mentioned, Nirvana frontman Kurt Cobain listed Philosophy of the World as his fifth favourite album of all time. The record has been cited as highly influential by Frank Zappa, in fact, in fact, I'm going to see if I can find this when you start talking about yours. I Ooh. think, I think Frank Zappa is actually quoted to have said the Shags are better than the Beatles. Yes, I think he has actually said that. Yes. Uh, okay, well, if you agree with me on that, I'm not going to look it up because I'm sure Sam Walton will come in and me to death if I'm wrong. Sam Walton will know. He'll know that fact. Oh, he'll know. He'll know. He'll, he'll, he'll open his, his drawer. Have you ever seen um, Bruce Almighty? Yeah. There's a bit where, where God opens the drawer. Or no, Bruce opens the drawer and it's like a mile long. Sam will open his drawer up and go, here it is. You're wrong, Merritt. Sort it out. <laughs> oh, and I'll go, fair play, Sam. Call me there, big man. So yeah, um, along with Kimya Dawson of the Moldy Peaches and Deerhoof. <laughs> so there, there's a few people, there's a few names that like this album. And it was ranked number 100 in Blender Magazine's 100 Greatest Indie Rock Albums Ever. It's quite the accolade, even if it is number 100. Yeah. 
It was included in Enemy's 100 Greatest Albums You've Never Heard list. And in 2016, Rolling Stone ranked the album at number 17 on its list of 40 greatest one-album wonders. So, for all the uh, bad reviews, the people going, oh, I can't stand it. There are people out there that do enjoy this album. I enjoyed it. Yeah. I enjoyed it. I thought it was great. I, I, I Like I said, I, I think it's thought-provoking. I think it's different. It's not run-of-the-mill. It, it has a different vibe to it. Yeah. And yes, there are childlike qualities. Yes, there's this. Yes, there's that. But ultimately, it it just, I don't know, it does something different. It does something interesting, and it's really worth a listen. It's mad that it gets both the extremes of this is the worst album ever made to then this is great. It's, they're better than the Beatles. Like, yeah. It's mad. I don't. I don't know of a lot of other albums that really hold that accolade. That, like well, the two huge extremes. No, that's the thing. There's no in between for it, is there? Because because of the the extremity of the album, there's going to be no in between for this kind of thing. So it's um it's to be expected at some point. But I agree with you. I don't think I know of another album. But like you say, is is on 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 the one hand being praised for being better than the Beatles, and on the other, it's complete garbage. Don't touch it. Yeah. So it's kind of strange. It's very weird. It's very odd. And I mean, it it, it to me it slots in perfectly with the uh, with the stuff we like to talk about. It was a uh, a very interesting listen. A very interesting listen. And you know, on returning because of how different it is. I wasn't bored. Like we were saying about how there's really simple chords in there, really simple melody lines, childlike rhyme, greeting card, lyrics. But I wasn't bored. I was like mm. listening to it. And I was just like, this is you you it's almost like um it's almost like a thriller on TV. You're on the edge of your seat. Like, what are they going to do next? I'm interested. I want to know. I want to see where this journey is going in that little red sports car. And that soundtrack would be la, 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 la. If you know, you know, oh, but you're not going to know. And you're never no. going to find out. No. Don't so. need to. Don't You don't need to know. That's, that's a sordid bit of the uh, audio clip that you're never, ever going to hear, everybody. So, so be yeah. thankful. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree with you, bud. I think it's a, I think it's a brilliant pick, and it's a good standard for topics like this. Absolutely, absolutely, and it, uh, yeah, I really enjoyed it. I urge you all go and listen to Philosophy of the World by the Shags. You won't be disappointed. And I often find that this is one of those, uh, one of those that like um, thirty seconds in, you'll be going, "What am I listening to?" Yeah. And after a while. You're like, this isn't actually as bad as my brain first went, good grief, what am I listening to? And you just kind of, you, you go through it. You know, it was like the first time I ever saw Mamma Mia. My brain went, what am I watching? And then after a while, it was, Mamma, and what a Napoleon did surrender. You know what I mean? Yeah, man. Yeah. I- uh Ah, uh, ah, uh, uh, nowadays yeah. everybody want to talk that they got some of the zine. 
Oh dear. So yeah, that's my pick, ladies and gentlemen, and all other folk. Thank you for listening to me, Marv. I know you picked an interesting one. Oh, I, I listened to a couple of tracks, and well, I'm gonna. Take I'll take it away, then, kid. Oh, lovely. So I did <laughs> an album which gets celebrated a lot, and this is very. This is now. I'll think of words. Usually, you know, a couple of times you might come up with an album that you're there like, I like this one, but it gets trashed. Or you're there like, I don't know why it gets trashed because I like it. It's one of those kind of things. Unless I just said the same thing twice. But basically, I'm doing Awe by Skip Spence, released May 19th, 1969. So weirdly enough, we both picked albums of the same year. It keeps happening. Um, another album made by someone at 23 years old. I thought that was quite interesting with the old Lauren Hill thing, but it's the only studio album from Skip Spence. Now he was involved in a number of bands prior. Um, he was the drummer in Jefferson Airplane's debut and he was the guitarist and singer in Moby Grape. There you um, go. Didn't know that. Go. So I first read about this in a classic rock article that was called like One Hit Wonders. Okay. And it was praise and they're like, yeah, it's a crazy psychedelia folky country album. Um, and you really need to, like, it's like, you know, you have to listen to it before you die, those kind of things. And the image of Spence with a very overgrown Beatles haircut, eyes that are just like this. And you're thinking this man is interesting. Yeah. Say the least. Now, uh, second year of uni, I used to live in Staple Hill in Bristol very nice house um, my mate james door used to come down on like our off days at uni and we used to write so what we used to do is we used to meet up in the morning we'd put on an album um listen to it and then we'd go up into my little room and then we'd write all day um so you know we do super unknown sound garden some saint vincent stuff marry me all that things and i was like you know what this article i had in front of me on my, my little binder i was there like apparently this is a banger so let's put it on so we slot it on, right? Because it's meant to be a classic album. And with each song, I was just like, um, okay, next one. Oh, um, God, have I put the right? Yeah, it's the same album. Yeah, same songs. Okay. I was like, what is this shit? How is this a classic? I have classic rock actually listened to this. Like, what's going on i, I yeah. don't understand why it was popular why it's celebrated it's awful yeah. I couldn't remember any songs off of it was not impressed by any of the guitar playing any of the melodies like lack of melodies if you can even call it that we were just kind of annoyed that we wasted our time it's very very weird i was just like this is crap which really in a sense planted the seed of like can i even trust articles and reviews and yeah every metallica song ranked from worst to best and you're like is it though is it though so yeah then we went upstairs and made sweet sweet music together it was definitely not from awe so there you go um so that was 2015 until now i've never listened to it ever again that was the one time all the way through and i was like we're doing this we're doing this uh reason because i've only got one album and I was like, it has to be this one. It has to be this one. Um, it's been filed in my brain as like a no need to revisit album. You know, those kind of ones where you're just like, yeah. I've, I've heard it. There's nothing I've gleaned from it. I've got all the nutritional value that I need from it. And yeah, 
cool. Maybe if it comes on skip or shuffle or something like that, maybe. But yeah, I, exactly. As I, I got a fair few albums like that. Um, but yes, I wasn't looking forward to listening to this. I think a huge part of it was knowing that I didn't have any other albums to kind of bounce this one off of. I couldn't hear how like he had progressed, you know, diversified or stretched his kind of output. Like if I could listen to, let's say he had eight albums and this was his first one. If I could listen to say like two or three from his like eighties period or something, and then someone's like, yeah, they're great. But you like, if you go back, he started off with this, this kind of guy, and then he's progressed further. Like his best album is his fourth one, but go back to this and you could hear the lineage. At least that would take some of the edge off of like, okay, I'm not the biggest fan of this one, but you start to kind of like it more in time and you can see where it's going. But this is like watching a pilot episode and you've only got the pilot. Yeah, It's like watching the American Peep Show pilot, which, I mean, there's about three of them, I think. They're all terrible. Not seen it. Go have a look. It's got Johnny Galecki who plays uh, Leonard from Big Bang. He plays Mark. Weird. Very weird. weird. Doesn't work. Really bad. And he's blown my name. Sorry. Go on. He's blown his nose, but I'm here. Don't worry. Marvy's here. So I've read up on Skip Spencer's life before I re-listened to Awe and realized the context this album sits in, but it still didn't change my mind going into this. I was still like, I really don't want to do this. I had like haunting flashbacks to that, that living room and just being like, oh, what's going on? Like, basically, I just, I can just remember like, that's what the melodies and the lyrics and the sound of his voice sounded like in my head with very, very basic out of tune guitar playing. Um, but I've had six years of new music planted into my brain, you know, a whole bunch of life experiences, gigs, podcast episodes in the bag. So, you know, I think I can do this. So let's dive into kind of the, the background of his music career. But first off, I'm going to do a little cough. <coughs> a little cough. Just a little one. <coughs> Sorry about that. I'm back then. He's back. He's got toilet roll. And don't worry, everybody. He's just shoving it up his nose. <coughs> nice. Very oh. nice, James. Very so, nice, Birdie. As mentioned previously, oh. Skip Spence played in a few bands during the late 60s. He got the gig as the drummer of Jefferson Airplane, right? He met a band member called Marty Balin at a bar. Now, Skip Spence has never played drums in his life at this point. And Marty Balin goes, here are some drumsticks. Um, we're recording in a week, so can you be our drummer? And he's there like, I don't drum. He's like, don't care. So don't care. Don't care. Not my shift. So, you know, Skip Spence goes away for a week, comes back. And the drumming you hear is just amazing. You would never know this guy has been playing drums for a week. It just sounds very professional. There's really inventive feels. It's very solid. It's just mind-blowing that I was listening to it, knowing that he'd only been playing drums a week, and I was like, this is absolutely insane. That's like, mental. I'm not saying Neil Pert levels of like drumming, like, a, like virtuoso, but just to know that he's had a week of drumming experience, and that was the uh, outcome of it. Like the Shags, like I don't know how long they had to practice and learn their instruments, but you just kind of think, wow, for people who are, have probably had a limited amount of time, they've actually made a whole album of songs. One um, day, one day, Marv, they recorded the album. Madness, madness. And I'm not getting emotional. I've got cold. It is emotional, though. It's emotional to have a cold. 
I mean, and the Shags managed to do all that in one day. It's amazing, isn't it? Just blows your mind, doesn't it? Eh? Um, he then got fired after missing a gig because he went to go party with some girls in Mexico. So, rocks. I could forgive that. The last band he was in before releasing Or was Moby Grape. Now, he got fired after trying to kill his bandmate, Don Stevenson, believing he was the Antichrist. He acts as hotel room, uh, but unfortunately, he got restrained and arrested. Now, he was high on LSD, so... Yeah. Yeah, it says it all, doesn't it, really? Yeah, it kind of says it all. He was spending most of his time with a self-proclaimed witch called Joanna, a groupie that got in drugs, most notably as one called Blue Cheer. Now, Um, Are you talking about the band or the drug? The drug, Blue Cheer. Okay. Do you like Blue Cheer? Quick aside. I love Blue Cheer. Yeah? I love them. Great. Nice. Credited as the original... Uh, inventors of metal. Nice, nice. Before, before Black Sabbath. However, I love Black Sabbath, so go away. <laughs> Black Sabbath, that's it. Yeah. They only exist. Anyway, Blue Cheer was apparently LSD and methadrine. Now, not the best combination of drugs for your brain to be functioning on. Not ideally. Um, apparently, one day he'd be looking good, and then the next he'd be all sweaty and looking like he shaved half his beard off with an axe. So... What's up with this bloke and axes? He just loves axes. Can't get a bloody enough of them. It'd be easy to buy for for like Christmas and birthday. You're right, mate. Got another, another fire axe for your collection, mate. Ah, cheers, mate. So after being admitted to Bellevue Hospital, um, the story goes on the day of his discharge, he drove a motorcycle up to Nashville in his pajamas, bashed out ore in a week. Now his wife claims this not to be true. So a more nuanced account goes like this. After his discharge, the producer called David Rubinson, who'd helped to get Moby Grape their record deal, picked him up, bought him some food and some new clothes, got him a hotel. Now, Spence said that he had new songs he wanted to record and wanted to get them down as soon as possible due to being deprived of a guitar at the hospital. So he's composed 30 songs in his head without an instrument and he's there like, I need to record them before I like, you know, forget them for, before I just kind of, they go. So never mind that fact. That's, that's amazing that he's managed to remember all of these songs individually. He's planned out all the chords, planned out what he's going to do without a guitar. So he was given an advance, um, bought a motorcycle and then made the 900 mile trip to Columbia Studios in Nashville. The only instruction given to the engineer who was over there called Mike Figlio was just keep the tape running. So in six days, he recorded 30 songs. Bearing in mind, when he, I'm assuming when he got to the studio, that was the only time he actually started playing them on instruments. Now, he also played every shingle. (laughs) He also played every single instrument on the record. So not only is he having to kind of compose the songs on guitar and vocals, he's then got to record each um, instrument individually and then try and make it sound like a band and all these things. So that's already mind-blowing in itself. Um, I'm starting to get the peel of this album before I'd even listened to it. So again, like I, like I was saying, Mez, when you get the old bog roll, these are all things that I found out before I'd sat down and listened to it. So I'm starting to put my interest up a little bit more now. Yeah. A little bit more now. Yeah. Um, 
after finishing up the recording, he simply went 900 miles back home and spent time with the wife and kids. That was it. No touring, no promotion. Um, apparently originally intended as just demos, but Rubinson, who was the producer who got him the advance, was so impressed that he released it as a full album. So you could make the kind of connection there that the Shags said, we, we're not happy with the what the songs on the album. They're not the ones that we wanted out. All these out of no. time yeah. ones. Maybe Skip Spence didn't want these songs out. They're just demos. Um, but this is what we got. So before I start, Les, do you want to tell me what you thought of this album? Or do you want me to list it through? What are you thinking? You know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna be authoritative. What did you think of the songs that you heard off this album? What's your opinion? Um, <coughs> shut up. It's kind of I feel like there's a I should have listened to more of it for a start, but there wasn't a lot that piqued my interest in it. it. It seemed quite tame, you know? It seemed quite, you know, relatively okay. It sounded good from what I heard. Uh, it sounded a bit much of some songs. Yeah. Um, like, you could have cut that. But, you know, I've, knowing what you've just said... <laughs> It's quite incredible to think that he remembered all that without touching an instrument, unless he was lying or on LSD or on blue cheer <laughs> or, or, or three of them or trying to kill someone with an axe. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's very interesting when you, when you describe it like that, how he just remembered all that. I didn't think it was bad. It wasn't offensive as such, but I feel like maybe I, I, I think I need to give it another listen because I feel like the story behind it seemed, from what I heard, to be more interesting than the actual musical content itself. I think a thousand percent, yeah. Thousand yeah, percent. no, it's, uh, I wouldn't call it boring. I wouldn't call it dull because music isn't boring or dull. Um, but it, yeah, you know, compared to the, to the, uh, the, you know, there's heart and spirit in the shags. And there's there's a lot of like up and downness, whereas I feel like what I heard of of old boy, it, um, yeah, there's it's not that it's the reverse of it as such, but it's a bit it's a lot more tame in its yeah. nature. Yeah, yeah you, you make you make a good point, and I think I can I think I can inject a bit more um, of I guess context around that, and it might make sense. Yeah. Why the songs might sound quite dull and introspective. And I'll get through that. Yeah, let's go. So we start with Little Hands. It's one of the more memorable melodies here. It's very 60s in its chord progressions. Now, people who are not musos, when I say very 60s in its chord progressions, what it usually means is they're playing in the Mixolydian mode. Now, all this means is, is that you've got all your notes in the major scale in a nice little formula each time, and you're changing the seventh degree of that, you're putting it down a half step. So what happens here is you just get a nice sound that you can kind of play. It brings in like a sad minor kind of quality to the music, but overall sounds happy. So it's like having a little drop of soy sauce 
in a nice fresh seven up. It's like you can drink it. It isn't going to ruin the whole drink, but there is something there where you're like, something's fishy about this drink. I'm like, Merritt, have you put soy sauce in my drink? And he's like, I don't know, but listen to shag, shag, bloody shagging and the wagon shagging. So I have to believe him. And then before you know it, I saw I'm, I'm drink, and then drinking soy sauce at the bottle with a little drop of seven up because I'm just addicted. And it's his fault. That was an excellent description of the mixolydian, though. There you go. See? So can you do any better? Don't think so. So I'm moving on. Yeah. Go. It's, it's got nice harmonies. It's a very cohesive band feel. Again, amazing because it's one person recording it. The dynamics of the song rises very organically. It's probably the most single-friendly song. It also gives you the best of the styles of songs we get here. So usually we get country-sounding songs and 60s psychedelia rock. This is a perfect meld of the two. Now, what happens is, is you either get country songs or psychedelia rock. So if you're a fan of both, good. If you're only a fan of one of them, bit mix and match this album. But uh, Cripple Creek hits with the former of the two styles, so country. Spence delivering his words in a low baritone delivery, sounding more like in his 40s and 50s than a man of like 23. Um, sneaky syncopated drum groove helps propel this tune from being too sleepy sounding. Now, that's my main gripe with this album is a lot of those country-esque songs. They're just too slow. They're too plodding. And yeah. you get... Boom, 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 boom. There you go. But sing that an octave down. Can you sing it and another octave down? There we go. Now, now we've got Skip Spencer's all. Um, they give me kind of a Nick Drake vibe. So again, this is where I could kind of sway you. It's very insular and very claustrophobic in its sound. And yes. I think that's what gets mistaken for it's a bit dull, it's a bit boring. Yeah. Really, what you've got to think is okay, the instruction was to the engineer, leave the tape running. It was literally the engineer and him. And this Skip Spence guy is just going around, plays drums, plays guitar, plays bass, puts in percussion, all these things, sings it. It's just him on his own, literally doing these songs, filtering them all out in his brain. So you can make this argument that like, it, of course it's insular and claustrophobic because you're inside his brain listening to him just pour out these songs. Yeah. Um, and you're just kind of brought into his world, much like the Shags one. You're, you're brought into this unique world of, I've never heard anything like this. And then you go read up more and you're like, oh, literally they were like, shut in, just go learn stuff, go write songs, then put in a studio for one day so you're hearing this just one day of them recording. Um, yeah. And the Skip Spence one has a similar thing. It's just that maybe, I mean, I'd say it's unique sounding for sure, but I think maybe next to the Shags, it's not as striking. That's the that's the thing I would say. Yeah, yeah, I agree with you. I agree with <laughs> you. Diana really gives us this very instrument, claustrophobic kind of sound. Has a spicy chord change in it which always took was my theory of rain. Love to hear it. It was like, oh, give me more, daddy. Um, and then a spooky electric guitar on the left channel. There's a funny bit in the acoustic guitar solo. So it's very kind of standard chords with this one spicy chord in. Um, so when they go to the spicy chords, the solo starts to kind of meander and you can kind of hear that he's just like going up notes in the hopes that it kind of just fits over it. And then, nice. And then he gets to like a note and then he kind of uh, 
he kind of ends it with like a guitar scratch. So basically yeah. he's muted all the strings. There's no notes and just kind of goes, almost like a finite, like, oh, I've just got through that. Cool. No one's going to know. They ain't going to hear that. Um, like, yep, I know what I did, but it's done now. That was the feeling I got. So this was named after your mum, Margaret Tiger Rug. I think you should call your, your dear old Mags that. You're right, Margaret Tiger Rug. How are you doing? She'd be like, James, you mean smoking that wacky backy? You'd be like, no, just been on the blue chair, love. Yeah, he knows. He's loving it. If for, for anyone who's listening to this on the Spotify and all the audio stuff, Merritt is cracking up right now. He's like, you're the funniest guy in the world, Marv. I can't believe you're my best friend in the world. Hey. I just wish I could breathe through my right nostril, to be honest. Bro. Ah, cry baby. So yes, this is a very much a badum bum bum song. Uh, it's an odd song indeed, talking about feeding a tiger and with a vocal melody that is is erratic and without thought. It's close to what might have been going through his head on those blue cheer trips. Like the guy is messed up on drugs. You can yeah. definitely make the connection with like how Peter Green took too much LSD and never really got back from it. This is very much a similar story. Um, yeah. Quite sad. And without pause, we get thrown to the tune, weighted down the prison song. To be honest, it's quite boring. It's plodding country song that kind of out of tune. It represents what I remember the whole album sounding like about six years ago. Um, so for me, weighted down the prison song is the worst for me. It's just like, yeah, okay. I, I wouldn't show someone that to try and sell the album. But if I wanted to not sell the album, I would play them that. Um, I can hear shades of Jay Maskis vocals from Dinosaur Jr. in this song. That low, slightly nasally tone that I'm not like against. I think nasally tone is completely fine. And it's also six minutes long. So I don't know whether this is the one that you kind of heard, but it was like, I want this to be over now. Maybe all of them sounded like that to you. Those kind of sad country ones. You're just like... Yeah. This all sounds the same. Please, please stop. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah, I know what you're saying, yeah. War and Peace comes in from the right speaker into stereo, brings along with it the most psychedelic moment from awe. Spence is now in his high vocal register, a complete contrast from the previous track, and the satisfying resolution from the first section of the second is just wonderful to hear. We also get a strong and confident electric guitar solo, that nice uh, broken-up 60s tone where... They hadn't really invented distortion or overdrive. It was all about turning up your amplifier as loud as you can, and it would just break up. So it has that really nice sound to it, you know what I mean? Mm. Spiky, as I like to call it. Um, and then we get another solo in the left channel. It's kind of an extra serving of dessert. A bit of afters, you might say. Um, and as a cheeky outro nod, he starts playing the riff to Sunshine of Your Love. And I'm just oh, like, yeah. go on, boy. Go on, boy. Um it really makes me crave um, an album full of those types of songs. I really wish that it was just psychedelia rock all the way through. Now, I mean, we have Moby Grape, um, which he contributed a lot to. So if you go back in his, his career, you've got that. Uh, Jefferson Airplane debut, very psychedelic. Um, so, you know, I can go back and listen to that, but if I just want just pure Skip Spence and maybe if he did another album, I'd like to just hear those rather than the country songs. But not to say I don't, like the country songs, just some of them are a bit plodding. And like I said, all the time, plodding and slow. Uh, Broken Heart takes us right back to country sounding, a low vocal song. This one doesn't plod, rather it keeps a jaunty tempo, so I'm already in favor of it, along with a melody and tricks that hold up and has strength. Definitely the better one out of the country songs, I would say. 
Um, nice. Go on. Uh, I should have muted the mic first. Sorry. He should have, oh. but you know, you, you just you go with what you. Uh, yeah, you good. He's all good, everyone. He's okay. And this is also a great example of forgetting that he played all the instruments by himself because it was just so well put together. So, Mez, let's talk about layering and overdubbing for a second. Now, I obviously did the intro today. I did the bass guitar first, and then I laid over some scratches on the guitar to kind of do like a kick and snare drum, and then live playing the guitar. Now, very basic, not in time, just slapped together. Now, when you now know that, you know, you look at the first Food Fighters album, that's the, that's the first one I think of, and Skip Spencer's Or, knowing that it's one person playing all the instruments, and then you forget that it just it sounds like a whole band playing live. I think that, again, people who either play... I would say that people who don't play, so non-musician people just listen to music and love it. Maybe at a push, like guitar players or even like singers. I would say maybe those two people um, or maybe just all musicians in general that just play one instrument, maybe don't understand fully how insanely hard and amazing that is that someone can play every single instrument and for it to sound like a band. Now, I'm talking about on analog gear, on acoustic instruments, rather than sitting at a, a workstation and you've got grids and the computer helps you keep everything in time and in tune. And even when you're playing stuff in recording it and you might be out of rhythm, the computer will just assign it to, to, a, to a certain rhythmic uh, note and you're all good. But I'm talking if I gave you a simple four track recorder where you had to, you had no correctional uh, devices and you had to play drums, bass, guitar, and sing. That's mad. That's like so, so genius. So based on your experiences of layering and overdubbing, what do you kind of uh, take from this? How does that add into maybe the positives from this album? Regardless if you don't like the songs, the actual act of making them well it's absolutely crazy uh that he managed to do that and make it sound like a band <coughs> given how difficult that is i mean you know i've been working on my own solo stuff for a while now i've worked in the context of a band a songwriter you know just dropping in to put guitar power on something and there's, so there's a lot to be said for a natural feel on a studio track when there is not, you know, is is being dubbed or there's layers, you know. Let's take um, the theme for Fifty Ways podcast, for example. That was a happy mistake. Um, I had an idea of what I wanted to do. Uh, in terms of layering, though, I mean, even even if you yourself are a very consistent player, knowing exactly where to stop, exactly where to start notes, because there's a level where it's like, yeah, just bash out, that's fine. But I like the fact that, so the very intro of that song, which will be available not before long, um, 
is four or five guitar layers at once with bass. Um, and it's difficult to pull off because, as I said, nowadays we have clicks and things like that. And we have gridding, as you mentioned. You can move stuff around. And there was still uh, one or two times where I was like, that's not good enough. I'm doing that again. I'm doing that again. Yeah, what about that? And I, you, I, I took what I thought would make what frequencies would work together in it and make it sound big and full. And I remember you listened to it for the first time and going, this really sounds like it's going somewhere. That's one person. Now, take all that back to 1969. No gridding. No uh, editing technology. No, um, you know, it, you, you could do it again. But eventually you're going to run out of things. You know what I mean? You're going to run out of tape. Yeah. Well, you've layered all these things on top of each other. Um, you make a mistake at that point. You're starting again. And that has got to be very frustrating. So whereas I've I've got you know, uh, unlimited possibilities. I could, I could, I could do a hundred guitar tracks for one. I could do a thousand. Yeah. And I could link them all up and do what I wanted with it. And that's crazy. But that's the technology we have on offer now. That's the, how how a lot of things are made. And it comes with its restrictions based on how much possibility there is. What do you want to do? Where's your oyster? But yeah, back then that would have been very difficult. Um, and saying obviously the story about uh, Jefferson Airplane uh, who have previously viewed my Instagram stories if anyone's interested um, there we go he's connected, he connected to six, connected to Skip Spence then aren't you famous, famous I am world famous um, that's, that's insane that story about him being asked to play drums and he was like, I don't play drums. And he went, don't care. Came back in a week. And he's like, bash out. Yeah. It's incredible. This incredible drum thing for, for, the, for their album. That's sick. That's amazing. The guy must have been an amazing musician. Yeah. You know, he must have been incredible. Um, so I'd take my hat off to him if I was wearing one. Here you go. He's putting it Here you go, Skip. Taking it off. Like That's that. for you, son. I like that. So yeah, like... The same with the shags, even just the act of making music, regardless of the outcome, is still fascinating and it's always unique. Everybody's everybody's music is different in the way they approach it, the way their skin is, their bones, what they've eaten. So many, so many different factors. So the same as a lot of things in life, you know, like especially like sports stars and things like people's, I don't know, serves in tennis are all going to be slightly different. No one's got like a, they might use the same kind of maybe technique, but everything is dis distance. Everything is different. Um, but yeah, it, it also doesn't mean that just because that's a fact, it doesn't mean that stuff is automatically good. It also doesn't mean, it also means that, you know, doesn't mean that nothing is automatically bad. That's just a fact going into it. Um, yeah, yeah. it's still fascinating for me I think the fact that he had them all in his head then went and you know probably experimented a bit but like and was you know brain was probably um, 
limited maybe from all the drug use he was uh, ingesting to just imagine. I, I would love to see him in the studio just doing that, just going back and forth, figuring things yeah. out, playing drums like madness, madness. Absolutely, mate. Absolutely. There you go. So one I really like is called Books of Moses. Um, his vocal delivery is more gravelly and spooky than the previous songs. The acoustic guitar, so it's played in like it's played in like D. It's like the D major shape. I think it's down like half a tone or something. So like it might be in like C sharp standard or C standard. So it sounds really low. But um, whenever everyone plays, I mean, I can actually I'll play you the chord. But it's actually needs better to do it. Here we go. Come on. So when people play stuff like that. That kind of style of acoustic guitar strumming always reminds me of the desert. I don't know why, but it, it just lends itself really well to like an Americana. Um, Americana. It is sort desert. of. It is sort of old west kind of. Uh, you know what I mean? Like, like the wild west, like a, a cowboy strumming. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I, I just, I, something about me really likes the sound of the guitar, especially acoustic guitar in that area. There's a lot of like, I think out on the Western Highway by uh, Rory Gallagher. Love that sound. My friends, Relux Chili Peppers, love that sound, all playing in that D kind of shape. Um, very bluesy, rain and thunder sounds as well, uh, along with hammering a low tom hit drenched in reverb. Oh no, along with hammering, like an actual hammer uh, and low tom hits. And there's even like a wolf howl at the end. So go on, boy. I'm down for it. It's just a little short as all. Uh, get another country song, Dixie Peach Promenade, Ying for Yang. Tempo is fast enough to tolerate. Kind of, you know, exactly the same stuff. Lawrence of Euphoria, very weird ditty. He's playing with rhyming words. It's kind of like shag stuff. It's just almost childish. His voice strains at points. Before you know it, the song is done. This one feels the most like a demo, I must say. And then we get to the album closer now. Great Afro. It's nine minutes of droney psychedelia. It's the most rhythmic track presented here. Weirdly enough, it doesn't outstay its welcome versus like the country songs that are just, they might be a couple of minutes long, but I'm just completely bored of them. It's just very, very strange. But um, yeah, you've got phase drums in the right channel. You've got vocal and bass in the left. You get death and some empty space in the middle the interplay between the instruments is just incredible considering he must have like done the bass and the vocals maybe at the same time then he overdubbed the drums on the top it's great to hear the speeding up and down when he locks the instruments in together it's great to hear his variations on the drums they're very melodic and you can tell he thinks about the song rather than the instrument part and that's a huge thing as well so yes. like being a singer songwriter rather than just being like, I'm going to play all these licks and fills and things. It just lacks a bit of soul, but very, very cool to hear. Very unique kind of drum style. But it does randomly cut off. It feels like, you know, the laptop's frozen or how we're struggling a little bit because the weather's bad that we're, our internet keeps going. So I see Merritt kind of like this still. I'm like, okay, I'll keep talking for a bit. And then Merritt will do the same for me. Um, well, and then, and then what happens is he's got more tissue up his nose and on his face. That's, hilarious it's like it's like you're getting like um oh, is it doom 
You know, like the little guy oh, yeah. health and you keep getting beaten up There's in his little... face. Yeah. Amazing. Eventually, he's just more and more like... <laughs> it's more yeah. like six sheets to the wind. It's great. Um, so, yeah, like I said, it, no promotion, no touring, nothing. Um, at the time, it was the lowest selling album of Columbia's history. Less than wow. a thousand copies sold. Um, and within a year, it was deleted from the library. So it wasn't really until his death in 1999 that he, um, the impact of awe on other artists started to come out. Robert Plant recorded Little Hands for a solo album. Mark Lanigan from Screaming Trees and Queens of the Stone Age praised it for the way it was cohesive, yet all over the place at the same time. And for me, that's a perfect description of that album. And it got a tribute album and he heard it, I think literally maybe like a day before he died. Um, his son played it to him and he's like, yeah, literally within hours or something, he, he died. Um, he was homeless and struggled with drugs and alcoholism a lot um, after or up until his death, so a good 30 years. Um, and that's interesting. I did have a classic rock article, but I've lost it. I must have chucked it out. So I was like, oh, it's a really good bit of research that had just gone down the drain, but there you go. So yeah, listening again, it's like I haven't heard these songs before. That's what freaked me out. If you were to ask me to play and sing a song from Awe a few days after my first listen six years ago, I would have sung some monotonous melody with some basic open chords, really exaggerating the boringness of it all. It seems like the song Weighted Down the Prison Song was the only one that had any effect on me because that would be closest to my impression, just very slow, boring country song. Um, but it kind of freaked me out because I was like, it made me wonder what other albums I've only given a few listens to and whether I'd have the same experience of, wow, this is definitely not what I imagined it, remembered it being all those, all that time ago. Could it just be from the artist? I only know them through like a one album lens, regardless of their other output. Or would it be the same thing happen from an artist that I like, I know their entire catalog and I go, you know what? I mean, Chili's, that's a good cheese. I'm like, okay, let me, let me listen to, one hot minute again, you know, or let me listen to Freaky Styley again. And I'm like, oh, I actually thought I knew this one inside and out, but it's completely different to what I remember it. Um, would it always improve like or, or would it expose the bad side of it? So like, that's the reason for my pick. So like I was trying to say beforehand, there's been a few times where you've listened to an album and you've gone, you know what though? I actually like this album. I don't hate it. And I'm exactly the same now. I'm like, I actually like this album now. I'm. It's been featured in like, you know, the best one album wonders of all time and all these things always get celebrated. And I was always just like, no, it's crap. But now I've completely changed my mind on it where I don't have to defend why it's bad because people know it's good. I'm the one that's had to go, oh, I now get the reason why it's good, um, which really flipped me out. It proved me wrong that my original opinion, you know, this album sucked. Um, I went from all being a one-time thing to now taking it on a few spins and actually listening to it rather than trying to critique it as it was playing. It's like going out with a person from your past again, realizing that the way you knew them as, perhaps like, you know, the one who was annoying in the nightclub and spilt most of their drink on me while I waited for my seven quid beer, was actually a sweetheart. And when you discuss that night, you find out that you were the one who had already spilt a pint over yourself beforehand and that they only spilt their drink because you tried to do something funny like the worm and then kicked your drink into them and like, you know, all hell breaks loose. Um, 
you know, on your date, like six years later, when you've rekindled stuff and you apologize for your younger self, you know, they accept it and understand it. And you kind of go, yeah, you're kind of, I get the core of who you are actually, rather than this kind of thing of like, you were that idiot from so-and-so or to put it more plainly, you, you probably have people in your past where you're like, Oh, he was a knobhead because this one time he did this, but then a decade might go by or five years might go by. You might meet up and you go, I've got the wrong opinion of you dude. this whole time. You're actually a great guy. You know, if you, if you got, you don't have to say the instances, but do you have instances of that? Yeah. You. Yeah. I knew I was coming up. I knew I was coming up. Uh, I haven't, but I know exactly what you mean. There we go. So, um, yeah, the song that I would conjure up in my head to kind of parody this just sounds really absurd now. Um, and all to me now sits alongside albums of like Sid Barrett, John Prashante, solo albums, those were well, the first couple, those introverted and pain works from one artist, underappreciated and dismissed at the time of the release, using primitive equipment, as raw and unfiltered as they could be. That's what I like about these songs. And you compare it to the Shags, like they're just, if, if they're meant to be demos, they're so raw and unfiltered and from his head that like they're the closest you're going to get to what the inside of his mind was like at the time. Yeah. So that's why it was dull and boring and introspective and just very closed off because he was just shielding himself with drugs and just in that little recording studio by himself, 900 miles from home. Like, that's the, it's just perfect. Like the album sounds like that, much like how the shag sounds like the story. Um, most people go through their life like never living out who they really are. You know, they may they may always there may be always be like a style or fashion you want to wear, music you want to proudly admit to loving, places you want to go, passions you want to seek out, like all these things that you just you know you might get to the end of your life, but I really wish I did that. You know the whole regrets thing. Um, you never do whether social pressure just the weight of the world being too much um step back and realize and again this is the medium of music here we're talking about that albums like this exist then and albums like this exist now is truly humbling and pleasurable pleasurably feeling um that there are artists in the world that give you all of themselves and that you can use that to free yourself so they're not in, in Skip Spencer's case, he's not even worrying about, okay, this is going to be a sad album. This, this song is a sad one. This one's this, and I'm really going to show my side of it. He's just being himself. He's just playing it. And if it releases it, fine. He doesn't care about that. And again, with the shame of the John Prashante first two records, it's like, I'm just playing these songs for me. This is how I am at this time. But they're not, they're not aware of that to then push it out to people. People get invited into that. And if you really think about it, like, let's get old Chad Kroger, right? We know him from Nickelback, right? It's like, do you really feel like you actually know him intimately through his music? No. I don't even know. I couldn't even tell you what his favorite drink is or what he actually is as a person. Coca-Cola. Roller coaster. Um, so as much as, you know, we don't know, let's say Skip Spence, Sid Barrett and John Prashanti. We don't even know these people. Like we only know their celebrity persona and what they give to us. You're never going to truly know what someone's like, but I mean, they've given us a really realistic view of what they were at certain times in their life. Like we did with the John Prashanti one where it's like, you know, he's literally dying of drugs 
on the brink of death and you can just hear that so much um and skip spencer's given us that maybe not as an intense version you know like we said with the shags with the out of tune out of time stuff that's a very extreme version of it this one's a more nuanced one because he's a great musician and can play and i think that masks maybe the the extremities that he was going through maybe the hectic lifestyle he had like literally being locked up in a mental hospital or a general hospital and then coming out and driving 900 miles to do it. So I think knowing this is a really good example of you need to know the history behind it to then hear this album. And it makes a lot of sense. And it really did for me too. So I would really recommend this album as a listen, um, try and get through some of the country songs or maybe cherry pick because some of them are just very boring, but read up about skip spence it's just so i mean he he lived with a witch and she supplied him drugs and then he tried to murder his bandmates with an axe so take it back what you will so merit you better watch out when you're next in the van boy because i'm gonna choppy 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 i'll just cough on you mate it's fine not if i cough on you first well i'm a couple of days ahead of you so uh Oh no, not COVID cough, everybody. Don't you worry. No, just gen- no, no, no. just general coughing. Just general. I've got a I've got a cold, as we've established. It's not fun. Well, <coughs> I'll put you out of your misery, Mez. Here we go. That was a good old podcast. Yeah. I had fun. Um, you know, go listen to these albums. Please tell us what you think. It's always very interesting. If you want to sign up to our Patreon, www.patreon.com forward slash 50 ways podcast. That's five zero and it's three pound a month. You get these episodes, you know, days early, you know, unfiltered, honest opinions. You know, we post up there regularly. We're doing Patreon only videos now. We got merch, baby. It's all there in the links and stuff. Nice community of people, you know, do we got to do, um, Merritt, you got a little lick you want to play? And his nice little guitar. Nice. That's very good. Right, I'm going to play you out now. The old good old song. Perfectly arranged. You ready? One, two, three.